Refresh your career with a blended learning course at Griffith College, a flexible study option that combines online and in-class lectures. Dublin, Cork, Limerick. Visit griffith.ie. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. I'm Jess. I'm Ellen. <laughs> We've done it twice now. It, it we realised, well, Ellen realised last time that nobody knew who we were. So we say our names now. We how say are you all? Now. We're recording this in the past. So how's coronavirus looking in this two weeks from now? Are we out yet? It, are, are we out yet? Are we are out we yet? <laughs> Please say we're out. I don't think so. Um, Someone was saying that we're not going to be able to travel overseas until 2023. Yeah, I read that also. That kind Zane of puts looks... our plans to go to Dollywood at the end oh, of next year Dollywood. kind of on hold. Will you guys be on Patreon wanted... so you can crowdfund our trip to Dollywood? Oh my God, no, don't say that because otherwise they'll just be like, they they advertise for Patreon money so they can go to Dollywood. Well, you know. <laughs> potato, potato. Potato, potato. Um, I used my Patreon money this month to fund to research this Scott Johnson episode mm-mm. and... And a book. I bought a book for a case Ooh, that I want to do. Oh, love that. Ooh. I didn't uh, even get to little, like, say tearful goodbye to my Patreon money before it flew out of my account to pay for all the ridiculous shit I've had to pay for since. Don't have to move house during the coronavirus pandemic is my <gasps> advice to you. Don't lose your job Ooh. and also have to move at the same time. They are not two things that are good to happen. At once. Not at the same time. Not no at thanks. the same time. I really want to mention before we get into the episode that Zane has a new cat. We didn't actually talk about oh it. Oh my god. Does Zane have a new cat or what? Her name is Leia. As in and princess. she's fucking fab. And Fifi is jealous as shit when I touch Leia. And then Leia's jealous as shit when I touch Fifi. So I'm in heaven. The, the cat nonsense is going to increase by 100%. But they don't like it. They like Fifi still doesn't like it when I pick her up. No. And Leia's not a huge fan of it yet. Yet. Because I feel like Fifi has been telling her shit about me. Oh, yeah. Fifi's like, look, everybody who comes into Zane's house is great. Except for this one girl, <laughs> the Red Bob, who is cray cray. Fifi is currently sitting on a box. Not a box. On a paper bag. Mm. With her ears back. Fifi. She looked at me as I called her name. Leia, I think, is at the food bowl. A great place to so be. That's, so that's your update. Um, I'm in heaven. Um, okay, we didn't check in last episode. Let's check in. How are you going? Oh, oh God. How am I going? Uh, I don't know. A six? Yeah. How are you going, Zane? He's a five. Holy shit. That's pretty high for Zane. I am, I don't know. It's been a weird, I had therapy on Friday and boy, oh boy, was that the most confronting shit ever therapist david always drags us down the street by the hair david was okay i haven't seen my therapist since february the 26th no no yes february the 24th we've spoken on the phone since then Mm. um but we haven't had a full session and boy oh boy did that man absolutely well basically i've had this ongoing situation for a couple of months 
and it's just absolutely ripped my life apart. And um, Therapist Dave is not a fan of the whole situation and how I'm sad all the time. So we had quite a chat. He's not – he's he's lovely. Like, I should preface this. He is an amazing, incredible man who makes me feel a lot better about myself and makes me feel a bit less insane about feeling sad all the time because he's like, you know what? People haven't been very nice to you. And I'm like, He's oh, yeah. also probably like, everybody I talk to is pretty sad, so <laughs> – <laughs> So yeah, it's just, I mean, I I was having a chat to my friend Laura today, who's actually a mental health nurse. And um, she was like, Jess, like you're putting in the hard work now, which is good. Um, So yeah, it just, this whole self-realization and trying to move past the self-loathing stage at the moment, because I just hate myself. Um, So trying to move through that is tricky during a pandemic. The isolation is starting to get to me. Mm. Working from home is also really difficult. Um, But yeah, rock on. I'm alive. It's my birthday soon. In like a month. Um, Shut up. I don't have anything else to look forward to. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Neither do I. Shit. Um, But yeah, trying to read. Been reading a lot of confronting things. Who's watched normal people? I'm so I want- sick. <laughs> who's watched that shit? And who's also read Conversations with Friends, which is by the same author, Sally Rooney, because that book fucking came for me. And normal people came for me too. And also I'm hating how everybody's talking about it. They're like, oh, first love. It's so amazing. I don't want to love like that. I don't want to love with a guy that <laughs> has sex with me and asks me to keep me se- keep it secret. It's fucked. I don't anyway, know I digress. About. I haven't seen it all read it and I never will. Okay, great. Um, it's Ellen's turn. We're talking about Moida. Moida. Um, what case are you doing this week? I am doing two cases actually that I've jammed into one because they're related. Of it's not one of my are. crazy ones. It's a shorter one for me. Um, the caveat <laughs> for me is very strong there. So these are two cases that I had had bookmarked. I had a little bit of an idea when we did our missing persons. Um, episode which kind of like formed the basis for the way that we feel like the show is going to go in the future where we like would do like a whole like season in quotation marks on like missing persons or blah 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 so I had a few of those cases bookmarked for a future if that ever happened Um, and then we also had a message from a listener named Tyler about these two cases who was like hey um, I heard you're living in Tasmania at the moment like Um, here are these couple of cases like blah 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 and they actually happened so I'm staying with my parents at the moment during the Rona I'm not going to say what town because I realized that was a mistake Um, (laughs) because there's not that many people there so it'd be pretty easy to work it out Um, but it these thing these cases happened like literally 20 minutes like and like the next town over Um, obviously long before I got here so you know it's all fine um but yeah it's very interesting like you know we've talked about cases like in Brisbane and stuff like that that we're pretty familiar with but it's also it's very strange like being in like a very small town and reading about cases that happened like the next small town over which is identical to yours and just being like "Mm -hmm, yep uh uh-huh that doesn't make me because it's like it's sort of hard it's sort of easy for like you know to sort of contemplate homicide in places like Brisbane or Sydney or yeah. Melbourne because they're huge, you know, so many people. Uh-huh. But like a small town, like that's so eerie. It's it's fucked. It's fucked. So, yes, thank you to Tyler for messaging us about this case and specifically me because I was the one you were talking to. Um, and, yeah, 
honestly, researching, I already like knew a little bit about both of these cases because as I said, they'd come up, but I hadn't done a deep dive and then reading about it, I was like, cool, well, I can never leave my house ever again because they're both unsolved. So homeboy's still out there. Anyway, let's, let's dive into it. So our first case, Nancy Grunwald was born in Flensburg, Germany on the 5th of February, 1967, and she was aged 26 at the time of her disappearance. So she had worked as a travel agent for a few years and she was a very well-traveled person. Um, she had been to 14 countries and she spoke fluent German, French, and English. Jesus Christ. Excessive. Um, all these Europeans, they all speak 50 billion languages. Like Anyway, um, so she had first traveled to Australia in 1991. Uh, she returned home to Germany for a little while and then set off on another trip, this time to New Zealand in July of 1992. Um, so she lived in New Zealand for just under a year while she was attending the Cap and Ray Bible College in Auckland. She completed her course and her parents came to visit her in New Zealand between the 3rd of February, 3rd of February is how you say that word, and the 2nd mm-hmm. of March. And after her parents left, Nancy set up for another three or so months traveling around Australia. And she'd met quite a few people like in her travels and in her life and stuff like that. So she was going to go and like see a bit of Australia, visit people, you know, Um, travel around mostly by bike and just see the country a bit before she started off on whatever would come up in her life next. So she left Auckland on the 6th of March 1993. She flew first to Melbourne and then jumped on a flight from Melbourne to Devonport where she arrived around 4.40 in the afternoon. This, uh, researching this case, gave me the incredible information that the town of Devonport has an airport, which I did not know about. Um... Neither. No, well, you wouldn't. It's just not the kind of thing you know about Devonport. There's definitely a port there. That's where you get off the spirit of Tasmania, but you can also fly there, apparently. Just one of the many incredible things about Devonport. So uh, while in the amazing town of Devonport, Nancy stayed at the YHA Youth Hostel. Um, She stayed there for three days. And while she was in town, she attended the Devonport Baptist Church. She went to the Taz Travel Center and paid a deposit for a one-way ticket on the Able Tasman, which is the ferry that, which used to be the ferry that takes you from the Bass Strait back to the mainland, which is now the Spirit of Tasmania. And she booked that for the 4th of April. So she was planning about a month's stay in Tasmania. She then went to the Westpac Bank and converted her New Zealand money into Australian dollars, which she then deposited into a new bank account. And since she was planning on being in Hobart the next week to visit a friend, she arranged to have her new card and her PIN number sent on to the Hobart branch and she would go and pick it up down there. On the 9th of March, Nancy hired a red Road, a red road Chief Marauder mountain bike from a bike hire service. Uh, she paid for two weeks usage, saying that she would return it on the 22nd of March. And she left her backpack there with the guy who owned the bike hire place, Trevor Goss, um, saying that she wouldn't be able to carry it with her on her bike. And Trevor was like, yeah, no worries, I'll hold on to it for you. Uh, there's no indication of what Nancy did with the rest of her day on the 9th of March, but it's assumed she rode into Launceston, a journey that would have taken roughly five hours from Devonport. She checked Holy into... shit. I know, like, oof. I don't understand cycling as an activity. Uh-uh. I can't ride a bike. What? You can't ride a bike? No, I've never learned. That's... My parents never taught me. Oh, that's really sad. <laughs> Catherine and John, get it together. <laughs> God, there's sadder things about me, isn't there, though? <laughs> I mean, yes, but that's a little bit sad. I can ride a bike. I just choose not to for moral reasons. <laughs> so she checked into the Backpackers Hostel on George Street on the 10th of March. 
um, on the 11th of March at 10.40 a.m. She took out $200 from her bank account and then it is believed that she took a red line coach from Launceston to St. Helens, which is on the East Coast. So she traveled. The thing about Tasmania is that it's mad small, so you can kind of go like from the Northwest to the East Coast pretty easily by bike in like a day or so. Um, it makes it seem like she traveled like some vast distance, but really it's only a couple hundred kilometers. So on the morning of Friday, the 12th of March... Um, mm. Oh, I accidentally skipped a sentence. So when she uh, got to St. Helens, she stayed at the St. Helens Hostel on the night of the 11th of March. So on the morning of Friday, the 12th of March, Nancy set off from her hostel on her bike and headed south down the Tasman Highway down towards Beaumaris. She got off her bike and went for a walk on Beaumaris Beach, then purchased a soft drink from the Surfside Motel before getting back on her bike and riding down the highway. She was seen by Christine Ladig and Tanya DeGreve, who were also staying at the St. Helens Hostel and had spoken to Nancy the night before. Um, and I believe they were driving, like, on the opposite side of the highway, and they kind of, like, noticed her. And then, like, as they passed, they were like, oh, that was Nancy. Like, wonder where she's going kind of thing. Mm. That would be – that was around 11 a.m., and that would be the last sighting of Nancy Grunwald. So she never went to drop off the bike and pick up her backpack from Trevor Goss, and she never got on the Abel Tasman headed to Melbourne. But it would be several weeks before Nancy would be reported missing by Reverend Ivor Jones, who lived in South Australia and who Nancy had arranged to visit during her trip. She didn't have the most nailed down schedule. So, you know, it was very much just kind of like a vibes sort of thing. Like she was going to visit friends and kind of, you know, even to Trevor, the bike guy, she was like, if I have a little bit longer, like, is that going to be a drama or whatever? Because she didn't have like a planned out itinerary. So it was like a couple of weeks before anybody was like expecting to see her or, you know. Mm. Um, so he phoned the Victoria police and it wouldn't be until the 19th of April that the Tasmanian police were actually informed about this disappearance. And the investigation was initially centred on Devonport um, until eventually they had found out that she had indeed uh, been in the East Coast area. And then that's when the investigation kind of moved their focus over there. So extensive searches of the area were conducted. I'm going to now describe the area, which I didn't have to Google anything about, which was nice. So how, like, the highway that she was on, like, we've talked a lot about, like, backpackers going missing and stuff on these, like, big highways between, you know, Sydney and Melbourne and stuff like that. Oh, I've just looked at a photo of her. Oh. I know. She's actually very charming looking. Very similar glasses to you. Oh, the sweet angel. Oh, the poor thing. I know. So, yeah, the the Tasman Highway, this is not, like, a big interstate highway. It's literally, like, a two-lane highway. Um... And it, in some parts, it's literally right next to the coastline. Like you look to your left and there's just the beach. And then in some parts, it goes fairly inland. So the route Nancy would have taken, she would have left from St. Helens. She would have gone through Beaumaris and then through to Skimandar, which is a journey that takes about 20 minutes by car and an hour by bike. And this is the part of the highway that is like right next to the coast. So like on the eastern side, it's literally just the ocean. And then on the west, it's either like coastal bushland or like little people's holiday shacks and stuff like that so it's not a big busy highway like you know the Hume highway or any other place that we've talked about but it's also not like the back roads you know what I mean like it's it's the no. only road in and out of the area um people use it all the time like I don't know what it was like in March in 1993 but you know it's it's still even though it's like a rural road, it's a fairly high traffic rural road. There we go. That's a good phrase to describe it. 
So the police initially searched from searched the entire area from St. Helens to Swansea, which is still on the Tasman Highway, about 100 kilometres south, down by Freycinet National Park. Um, they conducted aerial searches over St. Helens and Bishno, land searches around St. Mary's and Fingal, and they also searched the Breakaday River. They then conducted a search along the roadside of the highway, um, 50 metres either side of the highway, like on the nature strips and everything like that, from St. Mm-hmm. Helens to Bishno, as well as searching all the resorts, picnic grounds, and walking tracks in the area. And also the only the like northern section of Douglas Apsley National Park. So Nancy's disappearance had made the news and police had made an appeal for eyewitnesses. Um, but I think it was kind of a problem similar to like we talked about in our missing persons episode. Do you remember there was the guy who was the backpacker who went missing in the Northern Territory and they were like, be on the lookout for a backpacker who was tanned with dreadlocks from New Zealand. And we were like, cool, that only describes 8 million people. Vague. So they had said like, be on the lookout for a backpacker riding a bike, you know, And so they got tips from around the area, but also tips from like Cradle Mountain, which is in the northwest. So they did have to do some searches kind of outside of the area to follow up on these tips. You've been there. I have been there. I recognize that name. It was nice. It was a good trip. Can recommend. Um, So the fact that six weeks, almost six weeks had passed since Nancy's disappearance um, meant that even people that had seen Nancy and spoken to her like no longer really had the strongest memory of it you know she didn't really know anybody in Tasmania she did have one friend in Hobart who she was meant to go and visit but like it's not like she was making lasting friends at the St Helens hostel so people had chatted Mm. to her and she'd mentioned that she was going on a bike ride but they just didn't remember you know what she said they didn't remember it had been a long time yeah obviously the police had contacted Nancy's parents also they gave uh, the police some information about Nancy. Like they said that she was an avid photographer and loved swimming in coastal areas um, and that she had done some bushwalking in the past, but she wasn't likely to go bushwalking by herself. So, you know, it's not likely to have been like a lost in the woods kind of scenario. Mm. They also said that um, they had a really good relationship with Nancy and she phoned them about once a week. Um, the last time they spoke was actually the afternoon before the day that she disappeared. Um, and it was not usual for her to not be in contact. So ultimately, the police would take over 280 statements, file 500 reports, and offer a award of $30,000 for information about Nancy's disappearance. Um, So her parents came down to Tasmania to plead for their daughter's safe return. And, you know, it it was big news. It was, you know, very much front page news. What's happened? Nothing. Okay. Jess is pulling a suspicious face. Saint's just giving me shit. Okay, fair enough. Um... (laughs) But yeah, so after, you know, after this first initial like investigation and big like news media hype and stuff like that, the already pretty chilly trail went cold. You know, there were no real eyewitnesses and apart from, you know, they interviewed the local like scumbags and stuff, but there weren't really Oh god. Like, <laughs> oh, I can picture them casting the local scumbags in my mind of like the story of Nancy. Oh my god. Yeah. I can see it. It's very visceral. <laughs> it's, it's very easy to imagine. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there were no real suspects. And so Nancy's case kind of dropped uh, out of public uh, knowledge for about two years when another tourist, Victoria Cafaso, who was 20 years old and from Italy, was found murdered on Bomaris Beach in October of 1995. So Victoria was born – she was born in – England and she was a dual um, Italian and English citizen and she like Nancy was very well traveled which again super easy in Europe when you can just like 
you know. You can hop on a boat. You can just like walk down anywhere. the street and you're like, oh, whoops, I took a wrong turn and now I'm in Belgium. Like it's it's a bit harder <laughs> when, you know, you're in a big old country. It's a bit hard when we're in like a fucking island in the middle of nowhere. I know. Even harder when you're on a smaller island next to the bigger island in the middle of nowhere. Trying to explain to people, like I know you, you went to England to study, so you've been to places in Europe yes. and stuff like that. But explaining to people that I've never been to Europe. And the look on people's faces, they're like, because oh, it is such what? a cliche. And I'm like, it's far away. It's so fucking expensive. I know, but, but it's such shit. a cliche for people our age who have like, quote, done Europe. Like everybody's like, oh, have Fuck you not off. gone like backpacking around Europe? I didn't even go backpacking no, around hun. Europe. I went to France and I went to the Tintin Museum in Belgium. <laughs> you went to Iceland though, didn't you? No, I went to Sweden. Sweden, right. It was very cool, literally and like vibe-wise. <laughs> So, uh, Victoria also spoke fluent Italian, English, and French, and she had previously worked as a tour guide, and she had been studying law in Italy, but she chose to defer that course in July of 1995, and she went to stay with her grandparents in England for a bit to kind of think about her future. So, she enrolled in a language course at Portsmouth University, which was due to start in August of 1996, and decided that she'd go kind of like on a big blowout trip to Australia. So she contacted her cousin, Simon DeSalis, and who she'd actually only met twice previously and arranged to stay with him um, and got on a flight to Tasmania from England via Hong Kong. She arrived in Launceston on the 6th of October, 1995. I can't imagine being like, I'm going to go on this amazing trip to Tasmania. I'm going to Australia, land down (laughs) under. That's literally what I was thinking, but I didn't want to say it in case you were like, you fucking bitch, Tasmania is (laughs) amazing. Tasmania is amazing. I love Tasmania. Like, I think every day, like, I look out the window, I'm like, wow, what a beautiful place to live. We're so blessed. Launceston's a shithole. I've spent a lot of time in Launceston and I'm not a fan. You're off the – like you've gone this flight from London to Hong Kong and then Hong Kong to Launceston. You're a well-travelled Italian tour guide (laughs) and you get off the plane at Launceston. What the fuck have I done? (laughs) Anyway, I'm I'm sure there are good things about Launceston. Cataract Gorge is really nice. You guys should go there. Anyway, so she arrived in Launceston on the 6th of October 1995. And she was picked up by her cousin Simon and a friend of his named Peter, and they traveled to Simon's house in Beaumaris. So, as I said before, Beaumaris is in like the middle of St. Helens and Scamander, and it's like, it's literally, it's barely a town. There is like 50 like holiday shacks there, and like eight people live there full time, and the only business that is there is the Surfside Motel. Like, it's an extremely small place. Um, so, there's not much to do, and there's not too many people to come in contact with. And while she did meet a few of Simon's friends while she was there and they like went to a birthday party and she hung out with a few people, um, she didn't really spend any time with anybody or associate with too many people there. So on the morning of the 11th of October, Victoria told Simon that she's going for a walk and asked if she could borrow a small carry bag to put her things in. She left the house at about 9am and walked in the direction of the beach. So a few people saw Victoria on the morning, um, but the descriptions of what she was wearing were pretty inconsistent um, throughout. So it's kind of established now that she was wearing like a blue t-shirt that had like a wolf print on it and then some kind of brown. I read brown and then I also read green or gray pants. Um, 
as she had on a blue and white floral bikini and white sand shoes. And in her carry bag, she had a beach towel, a bottle of water, a Walkman, uh, sunglasses, sunscreen, and her purse with about 500 Australian dollars and some other foreign currency in it. Um, so she walked down from the cottage where she was staying, down the footpath, next to the Surfside Hotel, which was the same hotel that Nancy Grunwald stopped at to get a drink while she was on her little bike ride. Um, and then crossed the Tasman Highway to get to the beach. She was seen between 9.55am and 10.10am sunbaking on the sand by an Iris Smith. At 1.30pm that afternoon, a woman named Margaret McIntyre was walking her dog along the beach when she discovered Victoria's body lying on the waterline of the beach, with the waves washing over her. Margaret washed to a nearby house where she spoke with Russell Harwood and Jeffrey Adams, and they went with Margaret back to the beach and confirmed that, like, it was indeed a body. Um, and then Margaret and Russell went to get to the went and get the police while Jeffrey Adams waited on the scene and watched over the body. A few minutes later, uh, senior constable Pedder and constable Ferguson arrived on the scene. So Victoria was almost entirely naked, with just her bikini stop- top still on her body, but pulled up over her breasts. She had oh. been stabbed, lacerated, and bludgeoned on her face and head, which had resulted in quote horrific and extensive wounds. She'd also been stabbed in her back and chest. That is fucking violent. That is overkill. That's fucked. It's truly horrific. Like, I instantly feel terrible for joking about the whole Launceston thing because what happened to her was so, like... That is vile. Oh, my God. I mean, every murder we talk about is disgusting. Yeah, but this is really, like, just just depraved. Depraved is the word that comes to mind. So the first actions were Mm -mm. for the police to establish roadblocks, uh, go door knocking, and search the immediate area. And there was a bit of a question about, so there was, a, so the, these three initial cops arrived on the scene and they kind of like did their best to kind of keep things under control, I suppose, before backup could arrive, which I believe was coming from the Launceston CIB or possibly from St. Helens. Um, but there were a few things that like weren't done 100% correctly. I'll phrase it like that. So, you know, there were things like um, some of some of the officers like saw footprints in the sand, um, but there was like a bit of confusion. Like one officer was like, yep, we definitely saw these footprints in the sand in this location. And then other officers were like, no, we didn't actually see anything. Um, They also moved the body at some point. So the body had been moved. So one set of the crime scene photos, this all came out later in the inquest, but one set of the crime scene photos like her body was on the water's edge and like the water was like lapping at her body and then the next set of photos showed her pulled out of the water but the tide at the time was rising not falling so it was evident that she had been um moved up the beach like by a person um and then it later came out that they had decided to move the body because they were worried about evidence getting washed away by the tide before the backup police you know came in um, they also used a tarp from Russell Harwood's house to cover the body with. No. Yeah, which is kind of no. like. It's not what you're meant to from do. From a civilian's house? Yeah. No. Not, yeah. Not That's the That's not good. I don't uh-uh. think that's in the police handbook. No. So during the initial search of the area, um, there was a section of disturbed sand that was located Um, that the initial officers kind of dubbed the crime scene, which was about 50 metres away from where Victoria's body was found. Uh, Here there was a collection of footprints, um, one set that one officer pretty confidently referred to as female footprints, although I'm not 100% sure how you can tell, 
um, as well as another collection of items that were later believed to be Victoria's, including a bangle, sunglasses, a shoulder bag, sand shoes, a ring, and a watch. These items were spread in all directions in a circumference 8.5 metres around the disturbed sand. Other items like her clothing, her bikini bottoms, and a shell necklace she had been wearing would never be found. A time of death couldn't be properly established by looking at the body as her body had been in the water, um, so instead they used a little bit of you know, coastal geomorphology knowledge to work out the likely window. So they said that the disturbed area of sand, the disturbance of the area of sand was likely created at the time of the high tide as it was in moist sand and the bottom part of it had been washed out. So they had concluded that the crime had happened when the water level was at that point and beginning to recede, which gave them a range between 11.30 a.m. and 12.35 p.m. I think I mentioned this later on in the episode, but just in case I didn't, they later found out, like, after they, like, questioned people and, you know, looked around the town and everything like that, they later determined that between the time of 8.30 a.m. and 1.30 p.m., 50 people had been on Bomaris Beach. So, like, this incredibly broad window of time, 11.30 to 12.35, you know, an, an hour, basically, a beach that is, I think it's, like, four kilometers long. It's not the biggest beach in the world. And, like, she was stabbed, like, 20 times to her face, <laughs> like... I don't understand how nobody saw anything or heard anything. anything. 50 people were on the beach that day. Like, huh? Anyway, the following day, an autopsy was undertaken at the Royal Hobart Hospital. The cause of death was, quote, exsanguination due to multiple stab wounds, including wounds to the right atrium. So essentially, she bled to death. It was found that she had sustained 21 stab wounds to the body, all on her right side except for one, and all in the shoulder, neck, chest, and neck area. She had sustained a number of slashes or lacerations to her head, neck, arms, legs, and torso, as well as abrasions and bruising. She had a bruise on her right wrist, which had been possibly caused by the bangle she had been wearing, and abrasions on her left wrist, which were caused by her watch. She was missing three teeth from her upper jaw. She had fractures to her jaw and to the bridge of her nose caused by blunt force injury, as well as blunt force injury to the bones in her right hand. Um, because her body... Her lower body in particular had been in the water. There was no real evidence of sexual assault or any kind of penetration. But, <clears throat> but that was because she was in the water. Like, you yeah. know, there's it, it doesn't confirm or refute anything. No. Uh, so the pathologist, uh, Dr. Lyons, concluded that the stab wounds were likely caused by a knife, um, that there was a second weapon also used, which was likely a heavy straight-edged object, and that the injuries to her former forearm and hands were consistent with defensive wounds. So Victoria's parents, I'm going to pronounce her mum's name wrong, I'm very sorry, Zenia, Zenia? I'm going to go with Zenia, that sounds nicer, and Giuseppe, as well as her grandmother, came to Tasmania from Italy and England. And they visited Bomaris Beach and Xenia took a handful of sand to take back with her to Italy. When they arrived back to Italy after, you know, coming to visit to Tasmania, she, they had actually received a letter from Victoria, which was sent two days before her death, that said that she was having a great time. Uh, a memorial service was oh. held for Victoria in England near her grandparents' place on the 24th of the November. The next day, her father Giuseppe died of a heart attack. No! Oh, no! The mum! Can you imagine being the mum? Just the worst time in your entire life. I don't know how she ever recovered. So the Launceston CIB set up shop in the St. Helens Police Station to investigate the murder. And the investigation was pretty extensive. 
Um, so obviously they did all the usual stuff. They searched the area. They did, you know, land searches and sea searches or marine searches. Um, they interviewed everybody that Victoria had met during her short time in Tasmania. They got alibis from the locals, etc., etc. Uh, the police also held like a town hall meeting at the Surfside Motel in order to kind of like squeeze the town folks a little bit and see if anybody who came up with any information make them sweat make them sweat exactly one of the um leads of the investigation later said that he went in there assuming that every person could be a suspect like it was all very like it was very midsummer murders like it was very much like small town see that's the that is the vibe i'm getting Mm. also midsummer murders i just it's a very small place they would have had a murder rate like triple new york i reckon (laughs) One person died there every single week, like, suspicious. Why Why were, like, the – did the UK have federal police? What's the UK FBI? Where were they? <laughs> they're like, fuck, there's something in midsummer. We need to fix they're it. They're, like, looking at their crime statistics for the year, and they're like, yeah, London, you know, eight murders a week. Like, oh, that's terrible. Midsummer, 26. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on in midsummer? Oh. Poor Victoria. Yes, let's keep on talking about that. So Interpol was also involved um, in the investigation. That's that's the UK FBI. Well, Interpol is like the world FBI. Oh. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the Inter is for international and the Pol is police. Zane, who's the U- UK FBI? MI5. MI5, classic. I just said that Interpol was the UK FBI. <laughs> No, Interpol is like the world police. So they contacted Interpol to see if there was any connection between Victoria's death and her grandfather, who had been the chief of police in Rome. So they were like, mafia, question mark? But nothing nothing came up there. Uh, A profile was created. Is there a mafia in Hobart in Tasmania? I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. I don't think so. I don't think so. A profile was generated by Detective Inspector, wait for it, Kilmeyer. Oh, that's pointed. Of the Australian Violent Crime Analysis Centre um, of the possible killer. So Kilmeyer believed that the perpetrator was likely a family man with an unpredictable violent temper who was probably being protected by his family. So there would end up being three investigations into Victoria's, three additional investigations into Victoria's murder. So a review of the first investigation occurred in February of 1996, with it being found that there were 35 additional aspects to the investigation that required further attention. A second task force would investigate persons of interest, and that investigation was conducted from March of 1996 to March of 1998. And in September of 1998, another review was undertaken with the purpose of consolidating evidence and information and making a decision about the future of the investigation. I get the big old vibe that they just had like a million leads going in a million directions, none of them particularly juicy and they just wound up with a, a whole lot of files about like some guy who had blown through on a bike three weeks earlier who gave somebody the side eye once, you know, because there was no real solid leads. In 2003, Coroner Don Jones began a coronial inquest uh, with an, and he began with an appeal for information from the community for any information that might assist him in reaching a finding. When the inquest began, uh, Don Jones started hearing witness testimony and, you know, started like getting into it. And it became evident that the volume of evidence was so great that it would need an- another review. So the inquest was adjourned 
adjourned, um, Detective Inspector Little conducted a review of the evidence. He re-examined all of the forensic evidence, like literally every single piece of evidence, re-interviewed witnesses, redid a whole lot of the forensic testing and stuff like that. Um, they did all this like extremely intense like 3D mapping of the area using like all the photographs and stuff like that to kind of get like one big case file with all the correct relevant information in it to use for the rest of the inquest. So that is like a couple of sentences to brush over what was like an extremely difficult piece of work and investigation and stuff like that. But like, we got to sail along. So the inquest resumed in April of 2004. um, And Coroner Don Jones had a fair amount of critiques to deliver about the police investigation, um, including that the crime scene had been contaminated when the police used Russell Harwood's tarp to cover up the body. Um, that of the hundreds dumb, of dumb, footprints dumb, dumb, seen dumb, in the dumb, sand dumb. that day by all the various police officers who had trampled all over the site, only one cast of one footprint had been taken. Um, what? They only took one cast. So they had all of these footprints, right? They took like five they photos took and they took one cast That's of a footprint. Um, and that the police had failed to cordon off the entire beach. Jesus. Yes. Yeah. So the coroner would eventually find that Victoria had died at Bomaris Beach between 10.10am and 1.30pm on Wednesday, October 11th, 1995, that she had been involved in a violent struggle prior to her death, during which she had attempted to defend herself. Um, He determined that the the persons responsible for her death was physically powerful, um, that the blunt object was used on Victoria while she was still defending herself, the knife had been used after she had been subdued, that the cause of death was caused by two fatal stab wounds to the right side of her chest, penetrating the heart, that her body was left in the water after the death, and that the body was moved by the current down the beach. So there's this whole argy-bargy that I didn't include about whether or not. Um, so Victoria Victoria was 178 centimetres, I believe, and she weighed 83 kilos. She, so she was not like a tiny little fragile girl, you know what I mean? She was pretty solid. And there was... Uh, because, you know, she was 50 metres away from where that disturbed area was, they were like, well, did the killer drag her from where she was down to the beach? Like, did he drag her or did he pick her up and carry her and, like, put her in the waterline or something like that? And they were like, it would be probably difficult for somebody to do that, like, one person to be able to move her and everything like that. And then they ultimately found that it was likely that it was the water, like, the current moved her down the beach rather than a person. So after Victoria's murder, there was, you know, a lot of media and local chatter about whether or not it was connected to Nancy's disappearance. Um, But Detective Inspector Graham Hickey, who had been in charge of both investigations, was dismissive of the connection, saying that the only link is that they were women, young, foreign and alone. Um, Hickey said that there was a much stronger connection between Victoria and a local girl, Hilda Jackson, who was one of the few people that Victoria had met during her visit. So as I literally just said, Victoria was tall, she was 178 centimetres, weighed about 83 kilos and had blonde hair. Hilda was of a similar build, 176 centimetres and also blonde. And a few witnesses who had seen Victoria on the beach had actually thought that it was Hilda. Like these two girls apparently looked extremely alike. And this information was a little bit unclear, but um, it was also... I read in a couple of sources that she that Victoria had actually gone to Hilda Jackson's house on the day of the murders as well. So basically, yeah, there was a there was a a theory that it was a case of mistaken identity. Somebody had it out for Hilda and oh. accidentally got Victoria instead. 
So two weeks before Victoria's Ooh. murder, Hilda had been stopped by a man on the beach who asked her where the nearest pathway out of the beach was. Hilda had said that she had an uneasy feeling. She went for a swim and noticed that the man kept on looking at her. And then he eventually left. Hilda returned home to her home, which was right next to the beach, and she'd left a side door open. So she like came into her house um, back in through this open side door and came into her room and she couldn't find she had left out like underwear and clothes to change back into when she came back from the no. beach and her underwear was missing. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. So there were quite a, a few persons of interest in the case. Um, one, you know, as I said, they interviewed all the local scumbags and, you know, couldn't really nail anybody down. Um, but one person of interest that was not actually brought to the coroner's attention was a man named Dr. Roman Hassel, who was a gynecologist living in St. Helens at the time. Um, he was brought to the attention of police because a person saw him at a service station either the day of or the day after the murder with scratches all over his face. And he told police that he got them from falling down while drunk. He- yeah, sounds about right, Jared. Basil. Wait, what was his name? Roman. Oh, Je- I was making I was making. Oh, a- you're making a, yeah, you're making a Jared Baden-Clay joke. <laughs> yep. Nobody ever gets scratches on their faces from something other than being scratched. Um, so he told police that he got them, yeah, from falling down while drunk. And he said that he was at home at the time of the murder, but he didn't have a solid alibi. So Dr. Hassel left St. Helens soon after. He began working, working at Royal Hobart Hospital when he was fired for drinking on the job and failing to disclose that he had been imprisoned in Singapore for threatening his wife with a carving knife. Um... I'm sorry. Yep. So then after that, that cool like Jayant Patel thing happened where he was just like passed around to various regional hospitals where he would get like fired and then moved on, but then like not imprisoned for whatever reason. He eventually moved to New Zealand where it was found that he incorrectly performed a series of sterilizations. No. Yeah. No. He, did, he, Im- he incompletely sterilized people and then they fell pregnant. So that's not great. Oh my God, no. Uh, He then went back to New South Wales where he was finally suspended and then found to be not competent to practice medicine. Thank Jesus. Holy shit. Could you imagine? Yes, like literally. And so... uh, I'm sterilized. Oh my gosh. Oh, what? I'm pregnant. What the fuck are you talking about? You're like, I don't have a uterus. Oh wait, yes I do. Um... So the case oh, into – Victoria's case is still open and uh, the current person in charge, Detective Inspector King, has said that, like, Hassel is just one of a number of people, of persons of interest who have been interviewed. They spoke to hundreds of people. Like, there were hundreds of persons of interest. So just because this guy was a person of interest doesn't mean that he's, like, suspect number one. No, he's not the only Yeah, one. exactly. So in 2015 uh, – Police released that they were looking into a previous suspect after questions arose about the validity of their 1995 alibi, but obviously nothing ever came of that because I didn't find any news articles about it. Um, and as I mentioned, yeah, Victoria's case is still open. There is a $100,000 reward for information, and if you know anything about it, you should call Crime Stoppers. Please call Crime Stoppers. So in 2003, back in time now, Uh, About six months after the conclusion of the inquest into Victoria's death, an inquest into Nancy's death was conducted. So Coroner Peter Wilson determined that the two crimes were unlikely to be connected and that Nancy Grunwald was indeed deceased, that she had died on or about the 12th of March 1993, that she died somewhere between St. Helens and Bichno, and that, quote, foul play is involved in her disappearance in the form of homicide. 
In 2011, retired police officer Bob Coad, who was part of the investigation into Nancy's death, stated that he believed that she was not murdered, but she was actually killed by a motorist. So a few months into the investigation, a Hobart solicitor contacted police saying that shortly after Nancy's disappearance, he'd received a message on his phone from a man who was very upset, who said that he'd been involved in, quote, a terrible accident on the East Coast and had hit a cyclist and needed help. The solicitor didn't come to the police immediately. He looked into newspapers for reports of any crashes and couldn't find any. And the person who called him never called back and couldn't be contacted. So he didn't think anything more of it until the news of Nancy's disappearance actually broke. The police investigated, but by then the message had been taped over and there were no leads to this person's identity. Um, And so it kind of went nowhere. So this Bob Coed guy is pretty adamant. He's like, no, she was hit by a cyclist and he's kept up with that thread um including in 2019 he came out again and said that the police should offer indemnity to anybody willing to come forward about nancy's disappearance which basically means that they won't prosecute or charge somebody but just finding out where she is and what exactly but the tasmanian police were like we can't do that because you can't offer indemnity uh for murder murder." yeah exactly so that probably won't happen So Nancy's case is also still open. There is a reward of $30,000 for information. And if you have any, again, contact Crime Stoppers. Contact Crime Stoppers. I don't think that she could have been hit by a car because, like, they very much searched pretty extensively on the sides of the road. Um, If she got hit by a car, like, she must have – it must not have been in the area where they searched because there's – there is a lot of bushland and stuff like that, but I just feel like you'd find – if not the body, then the bicycle. Like, it would turn up at some point. Yeah. Unless it was very much, like, if she had gotten further down the highway than anybody expected. But, like, they searched all the way down to Swansea, which is, like, hundreds of kilometres away. It doesn't sound very It doesn't likely. sound very If she likely. was hit, she would be in the immediate, like, bushland. Yeah. Like, as a, like a motorist isn't going to spend time. Not necessarily. That's that's what I thought. I mean, I, I could be wrong. <clears throat> I don't know why anybody would murder her. Um, and I also, yeah, I don't know if I believe that the two cases are connected, but they are pretty similar. Very, like, quite spookily similar. For two people to die two. in a very small area, in two very small towns, a short time apart. It's it raises odd. some eyebrows. It, it, it is pretty questionable, I think. But those, that, that was it. That was the cases. Great job! So close to you. Please don't go outside. I know, it's so scary. There are a few things that I didn't include in the episode because I was like, if I say this and that person is still living in the area, they might find me. <laughs> so if anybody's like, <laughs> why didn't she talk about that suspect? It's because I value my life. Yes. And I value hers too. Um, Amazing job, as Thank always. You. you knock it out of the park every time. Um, Something I forgot to mention on the last episode, if you would like to become a Patreon... We do have we Patreon do have available. That. We have that option. Um, I mentioned it because I, I wanted money. <laughs> um, so we have Patreon-only content. We're about to record an episode that's going up where we're going to do the Cliff's Notes version of BTK. So if you want to hear us talk about that, Dennis Rader and how cooked he was, head on down to the Patreon. Um, we obviously understand that money is tight for everybody at the moment, so no... No pressure. It's all good. No pressure. Um, so as we've said, we've got – how many more episodes do we have to do? South Australia, Victoria, Northern Territory? We've done the Northern Territory. We've done the Northern Territory. We've got to do South Australia, Queensland. Oh, yes, you did. North- Victoria. Three. We have three more to go. 
And then we will be starting our uh, new foreman of Mitlu. If you have any cases that you would like us to look at, either for the states coming up or for our next season, please email us at murderinthelandofoz at gmail.com or get in contact with us on Instagram. Uh, making sure that you're leaving us reviews on the Apple podcast app. Um, five stars would be great. Um, and yeah, get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, we hope you're all staying safe. Um, obviously restrictions are being let up in some parts of Australia. Um, probably not for the rest of the world. Don't really know. Um, but hoping that you guys are all staying safe, being really, really mindful of the people around you. Um, it's not just about us at the moment. It's about everybody. So hope you're all staying safe and being good and rocking on, you know, rock on cute. All right. Rock on dolls. Bye. Hello there. Do you take great pleasure out of using large and obscure words that nobody understands? Perhaps you enjoy peppering a strange adjective into a work email, or finding a new verb to pursue as a hobby? Or perhaps you are a seasoned logophile, such as myself. An assemblage of grandiose and bombastic grandiloquence brings together all the world's most interesting, bizarre, and fascinating language to teach you a new word every day. We are available on all of your podcatchers, and you can find out more about us at that'snotcanon.com. I cannot wait to explore the wonderful world of words with you. That's Not Canon Productions podcast. Supervalue now have more online slots than ever before. Shop now at supervalue.ie. Collect your weekly shop with our contactless collection service. At Supervalue, we're there for you. Grenka, your finance partner for fast, efficient leasing and invoice finance options. Are you a supplier of business equipment? Do you want to grow your sales and increase your profit margins? Do you want to expand your customer base and have the edge over your competition? Talk to Grenka today about becoming a partner. We pay your invoices within 24 hours of delivery, saving you time to focus on growing your business. We lease everything for the office, home office, school, university, surgery or factory. From office furniture to cutting edge business technology. Grenka, fast forward finance. That's G-R-E-N-K-E. We'll